0: This is Polyoptics,
1: shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
2: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, the exit interview. January 25th of this year marked the end of one of the most tumultuous, substantial, and consequential terms of any U.S. Treasury Secretary, our 75th Timothy Geithner. With four years at the helm of the nation's economy, rarely a day passed without a brush with crisis. But in the end, by most measures, we're on far more favorable footing than four years ago. So when Secretaries Robert Gates and Leon Panetta left the Pentagon, we sat down with their spokesman to reflect on those tenures. And today's edition of Polyoptics with former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Jenny LeCompte, it's the next installment of those major cabinet exit interviews. Then, if you missed our show last week, you haven't yet heard chapter one of our conversation with Bo Willimon, the executive producer and the showrunner of the hit show on Washington's fictitious underbelly House of Cards in the World of Congressman Frank Underwood, now streaming for millions of viewers on Netflix. Bo spent an hour with us, and we have chapter two of that dialogue at the bottom of the hour. If you need to catch up on Chapter 1, head over to Episode 92 at polyoptics.com or download it on iTunes. But first, we welcome to our microphones my old friend, Jenny LeCompte, a former Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs of the Department of Treasury, to deconstruct the efforts behind the scenes to project U.S. financial power through polyoptics, a major challenge coming on the heels of the worst financial crisis in modern history. Welcome, Jenny, to polyoptics.
0: Thanks so much, Josh. Great to be here.
2: Well, you know, Jenny, once in a while, I'm lucky to call on a ho- co-host with unique knowledge of the subject matter. So before we get to the balance of your career, let's focus on the last four years at Treasury with someone who knows the turf better than anyone else. I'm talking about the former secretary himself, Timothy Geithner. Welcome to Polyoptics, Mr. Secretary.
3: Thank you, Josh. Hi, Jenny.
0: Hello. <laughs> After I say so hello t- with great <laughs> trepidation. <laughs>
2: after so many times in which Jenny peppered you for appearances on Sunday shows, now sir, the shoe is on the other foot and I humbly
3: yield the floor. Well well Jenny, you know, you've worked with some interesting uh figures in public life. You work for for Senator Schumer, I think, and for President Clinton and you work with me and I, I guess my question is, you know, who was your favorite? And was it <laughs> was it harder to work was it more fun to work with people who wanted attention? or was it more fun to work with people who didn't want attention? <laughs> uh,
0: excellent question, uh, which I learned that response from you. I, I, I would, would certainly say, uh, regardless of, of who we have uh, interviewing me here today, that it was a great pleasure uh, to work at the Treasury uh, for you, and uh, particularly during this uh, particular era. So um, uh, I don't know, maybe Senator Schumer is a another surprise guest on this program that we will have uh, popping Soon, but uh, I'm going to stick with that answer at least for now.
3: Well, I hope I hope you're able to be more candid over time. <laughs> you know, we did a lot of we did a lot of trips together, uh, and um, it is true that there were occasions when I was able to break away from a. International meeting to do something uh, recreational, something interesting, compelling, and I guess I should ask you know, was that a challenge for you, and did you did you have a hard time trying to make sure that those those things weren't recorded
0: your, your incredible skill at sport this is this is what we're discussing well some of them were recorded I think we did a little bit of basketball in Beijing I think there was some cricket uh in India so um I think we we got a few of those captured there's a few others of those uh that will just uh leave uh, quietly in the books but uh all in all I think uh I feel okay about where we shook out with all that
3: well, Josh, good luck with her. Um, she's excellent, as you can tell. You should ask her how she got the rep- how she got the the name uh, Jenny the Tiger. Oh, um, it's
2: totally on the agenda, but, sir. But you'll <laughs> have
3: you'll have other things to talk about with her. But nice to talk to you both.
2: Before I let you go, sir, can I ask one question? Sure. So in February 2009, you know, you're you're working at the New York Fed during the financial crisis with Secretary Paulson. You are involved in the transition get, getting ready for your job. There's that Obama press conference and then your speech the next day. And if you compare the way that went on that day to 4 years later when you were able to say farewell to the department and to do some of the exit interviews that you did, how did you grow as a in the public aspect of your job, do you think?
3: That's a that's a mystery, but only one Jenny can answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you
0: sir. Well,
2: Jenny Engerbretth and Le Comte, how are you?
0: I'm fine. And see how deft he is at at uh, keeping himself out of the line of fire? I, I think that is uh, some skill well honed over the course of the past four years. <laughs>
2: I mean that's clearly a guy who has strut his hour upon the stage four years as Treasury Secretary and is now at the Council of Foreign Relations and is determined to uh, you know, recede quickly and probably make uh, speeches and maybe write a book before he he takes his next step. What's what has been the the sort of planning of the. Of the Secretary Geithner transition.
0: Well, I think um, he is quite keen, um, as you noted. Uh, now that his tenure at Treasury has wrapped, to step off um, that public stage uh, for a while, and um, I think uh, he has he feels he has had uh, more than enough time in the hot seat uh, for certainly a while, and um, is is uh, looking forward to a little bit of a quieter uh, existence for for the time to come. Um, as you noted, uh, one of the big assignments on his plate is writing a book, and uh, so uh, we did announce this week that that is officially underway and will be out um, in 2014. So uh, I think we would uh, it would be good for him if we all left him to that a little bit. <laughs> he does have a of a, a bit of an assignment ahead.
2: Clearly, he wants to get to that. So that's right. You know, if you reflect on some of the people that you've worked with, starting with Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin and Bill Clinton and John Edwards and Barack Obama. I mean, this is a person who, going back to that date, and he didn't really want to talk about it too much, but but February 2009, uh, into a spotlight. And he, he did not spend his life working up through politics and, and the glare to be ready for that moment. I mean, what was it like for you to go from people who were so practiced at the public stage to someone who really was not happy? comfortable being there at the outset.
0: That's right, that's right. He, he had uh, been a staffer for so many years, uh, having grown up a good portion of that time uh, at the Treasury um, in many of the positions that colleagues of mine uh, had over the course of the past uh, four years. And um, he he came into office um, to be the Treasury Secretary uh, in what was a, a much uh, different role, and particularly so at a time when there was was so much attention on the department. Um, The first uh, television interview that Secretary Geithner ever did in his whole entire life was with Brian Williams for NBC News. And I think um, most of us who are in this business or who have worked with folks who spend some time on television uh, take an initial tour, maybe through a local affiliate in uh, Dubuque or Topeka, Kansas. But uh, this was uh, straight into uh, the NBC uh, uh, hot seat and uh I think uh, you know, that's certainly not something I would have wanted to take a run in and I think probably most folks can sympathize with that as well. But he had uh, quite a bit on his plate in that initial period and I think was largely and rightly focused um, on the policies themselves and uh, getting uh, getting uh, those uh, uh, pieces of the financial stability plan in place uh, and helping us from go over the cliff. And there was plenty of time for, uh, for more TV uh, in the months that followed. So
2: how did it evolve for him? I mean, how did you get him better? I've read in some of the Reviews of the last four years that uh, in prep you would sort of create taboo words like credit default swaps that he was sworn <laughs> not to say in interviews. I mean, how did it get? How did it get to the point where, you know, in 2011 it was would he stay or would he go? And and finally we knew that he'd stay until the end of the term. And then it, it, I think if President Obama could have had him for another four years he would have sort of signed him up immediately. But how did you make him better for the public stage?
0: Well, I I wish there was some uh, secret trick that I could uh, roll out and point to, but I really um, would turn it back um, to his fundamental skill and command um, of the substance. And he's a really um, sharp and skilled uh, debater. I think some of his uh, best interviews were those, um, you know, more in the line den or uh, with folks who are a little critical or a lot critical frankly um, and challenging um, because he really uh, liked the exercise of walking through um, here's what we did why uh, you can take issue with this piece here's a response um, and I think uh, once he he really um, uh, got into to that groove um, he not only enjoyed that but was very good at it um, and it was Something um, that I think, you know, he was tapped for more and more um, over the course of the administration before he left office in uh, December. The White House asked him to do a a, a famous Full Ginsburg on the Sunday shows uh, during the fiscal cliff debate. Um, And I think, you know, that's a testament uh, to his skill um, and ability to uh, communicate and really make, um, in this case, the economic uh, case for uh the agenda and the and the policies of this president.
2: And it's one thing to go up to Nebraska Avenue or have the sit down with Brian Williams or do the full Ginsburg, but another aspect is you and I both know that shapes opinions of the administration, and in particular how certain cabinet secretaries are communicating uh, the message of their department, is is how you work things behind the scenes. Sure. And, you know, so sometimes there needs to be a, a full campaign to think of who really are the intermediary influence leaders in Washington. What are the columns that are written? What are the g- guests who are in the green room? And if they only knew how well, or, or if they only got the full Geithner briefing behind the scenes or off the record, they would be better sort of promoters of what the administration's agenda is. So how does that really work?
0: That's right. Um, you know, I, I think we definitely tried to incorporate a good bit of that uh, outreach uh, and engagement in in all that we were doing. Of course, um, you know, there is limited time to every day and you always look back um, and wish you had, uh, had had time for three more of those types of things along the way. But I think it's particularly important um, for a department like Treasury, for a secretary um, like the secretary of the Treasury, where every word out of your mouth um, is so carefully watched and parsed. Um, and so if you are going to uh, limit yourself to just on-the-record uh, engagement, um, it's going to be uh, just that, a very limited uh, interaction. So we did very much try to take the opportunity uh, to bring folks in, whether it was through dinners or coffees or, you know know. know a pull aside on a long flight uh, overseas uh, and engage reporters uh, in a more off-the-record candid discussion that was definitely a big part uh, of what we look to do and and also as you noted try to extend those conversations with a lot of uh, the folks who are so influential uh, here in Washington and in uh, in the debate around any uh, given policy issue.
2: I mean, Secretary Geithner made a mention of perhaps a lighter moment that you and he had on the road, a basketball game. But, <laughs> you know, you and I both worked for Bill Clinton, where photo ops were the a, a lot of the sort of modus operandi of the day. Chuck Schumer, you know, never saw a camera he didn't like. But <laughs> so the they nature, say. <laughs> so the nature of the Secretary of the Treasury, though, is not one to engage in much beyond testimony on the Hill or standing behind the president in the Rose Garden or... Giving a briefing or doing a full Ginsburg, what's the what is the particular challenge of creating a connection between the everyday care of folks and what the secretary can do to to establish that the U.S. government, in particular, the secretary cares as, as it might relate to the housing crisis or the credit crunch?
0: Sure, no, it's a good question, and I think um, definitely a challenge that we faced in that so much of two thousand nine was uh, wholly. De- defined by the financial crisis and the rescue um, that uh, Secretary Geithner was at the, the very center of implementing. And I think if you look back at the um, images over the course of 2009 of him, they are the vast bulk of them have him uh, sitting behind a table on the Hill testifying, you know, before Congress. Um, and as we came out of that mode, um, a little bit moving more into 2010, and, and later into the tenure, we really did try to um, broaden that lens on the work um, that he was doing um, and tried uh, uh, in good, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways uh, in that regard to get him outside of Washington and um, to really have him engaging uh, more directly and visibly with the business owners, the um, manufacturing companies that are making so many products um across the country, Um, and he wanted to have those conversations with the business leaders to understand uh, what was still hard, what was getting better, um, what are you feeling, Um, and so it was incredibly valuable for him um, to be out and doing those meetings, having those conversations, and it also, you know, allowed us um, to showcase him doing his work uh, in an environment uh, that was very different um, from so much. Of, of what had uh, defined uh, 2009. How, did, how would
2: it feel to go back to the Treasury Department after uh, testimony in the Hill, for example, uh, there would be Secretary Geithner sitting next to uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. And look, they've... They've worked on their testimony. It's been expertly written. It's been fully vetted. Wolin has signed off. Um, (laughs) And and yet, you know, the image that might come out of that would be Code Pink Mm -hmm. uh, standing up in in three or four rows deep in the committee room. And and there goes an image of how Bernanke and Geithner are are being uh, seen in the press, like people – you know, the, the Code Pink people are trying to get their message out and they do so expertly mm-hmm. from a polyoptic standpoint by se- standing up, making a ruckus and putting up their signs.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that goes right to the heart of so much of what was the challenge of all um, we were doing around the rescue um, was a real, um, you know, misunderstanding, misperception around uh, what we were doing and why. And that is is still something um, that you know we continue uh, to wrestle with today um, but you go up uh, whether it's to a, a, a Hill a hearing room or into an interview um, real set on uh, hey these are the policies we need to tick through and explain and um, the environment is often incredibly was often uh, is as I said continues to be often incredibly noisy um, with uh, a lot of different views and, again, misunderstanding about um, the motivations of the people who were um, at that cent- the center of that rescue that was so um, critical in saving the economy from a failing financial system, which is just still not at all uh, what folks think we did. Folks think that we were out to save uh, the financial system. And, uh, again, it was at its core something very fundamentally different.
2: Well, maybe we'll see in Secretary Geithner's book the other aspects of the Treasury portfolio that, that we might not pay enough attention to now because the rescue was so front and center in our consciousness. But for you as the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs, when it came to things like Iran sanctions, uh, Wall Street reform, growing the economy, how did you allow get that message out even if the mainstream media was much more focused on the here and now of the crisis.
0: Sure. Well, there was definitely more, uh, more space, more room for that um, as we got a little bit deeper into Secretary Geithner's tenure. Uh, Wall Street reform was um, definitely an extension of the work um, that um, he and others had done initially um, to stabilize the financial system, um, and reform um, was was a very important um, next chapter for. That. That, and I think uh, a really significant um, accomplishment, both for the president and for for Geithner, um, coming out of of the first term. Um, but you're right; there's a huge breadth of of issues that the Treasury uh, takes on. Very involved in financial sanctions. Um, very involved in you know the G20 uh, uh, rounds of meetings and diplomacy um, through um, economic channels there as well as many of the core tax and budget, the fiscal issues that are, um, you know, at the center of, of so much of what Treasury has, uh, you know, historically been very, very uh, steeped in. So um, that is a challenge. But I think we were very fortunate to have a really good uh, team of senior officials there beyond uh, the secretary. You certainly uh, mentioned the DEPSEC, uh, Neil Woolen, um, who was um, very engaged across the board on those hosting issues. And I think it was very important that we utilized all of their voices um, to be out and to highlight the work on a lot of key aspects of the portfolio um, You know that the secretary um, couldn't be the spokesperson for on, on any given day.
2: Moving on to sort of the international engagement and the role of the Treasury Department, I've watched some video before we were talking of uh, uh, Secretary Geithner, I think at a G20. And perhaps in that Washington Post retrospective of uh, the Secretary's uh, tenure. It has Christine Lagarde hmm. uh, talking about Tim's saying, Tim's natural approach to things is very smart, but a little bit irritating at points, unquote. And she talks about how you know he's, his mind is moving at 100 miles an hour and everyone else might be moving at 50. And uh, to what extent was this Secretary of the Treasury able to uh, put American interest and dialogue into the talk about how to keep, how to rescue Europe or keep the global economy uh, moving or beginning to rebound?
0: It was, you know, uh, certainly when it comes to the financial fires in Europe um, that, uh, you know. Uh, raged on um, during a good portion of um, the Secretary's term, it was something um, that he came to with a a wealth of experience um, in crisis fighting not only uh, what we had, um, you know, just uh, engaged in um, here in the U.S. in in 08, 09, um, but also going back to the Secretary's career um, at Treasury prior to that um, and a series of international uh, financial. Financial crises that he helped um, to address um, from the U.S. perspective as Undersecretary for International Affairs. So um, he has uh, spent a, a good bit of, of his career uh, in that uh, financial crisis firefighter uh, mode. And I think that was certainly something um, that was very valuable experience. Now, you also, of course, have to approach those conversations, those um, interactions with a great deal of humility um, in that uh, you obviously uh, want to um, have your diplomatic hat on, uh, as well uh, as sharing uh, the experience that you have. But I think he, he certainly did that. And um, there's always a good bit of finger pointing uh, that takes place around G20 meetings or others, uh, gatherings of that nature. Um, But I think uh, the secretary is someone who is very respected um, and has, frankly, a lot of uh, longstanding relationships with a lot of the folks that sit around those tables um, in that he has been doing this uh, for so many years.
2: You know, public service is such a tough gig, and it's sometimes, especially when your kids uh, are of a young age and um, you are being drawn into a longer tenure of service perhaps than you anticipated. One of the recurring narratives uh, in 2010, 2011 was, you know, how much longer would this secretary stay in office? Certainly, Hank Paulson has a very prominent profile because of the few, you know, months of the financial crisis, but Secretary Geithner's been in there for four years, and it took a, a big toll, I think, on his family. and And at some point, you needed to come out and make a definitive statement that he has told President Obama that he is going to stay through the election. What's the What's the difference, sort of, for you as a communications advisor and a spokesperson in dealing with the you know daily crisis of the uh, of of dealing with the economy versus helping to tell people about how a person is is doing their job and, and wrestling with the, the personal conflicts that come with longtime public service.
0: Sure. Well, it, this was a particularly uh, frustrating thing, I think for him and uh, for us as, as staff both in that it felt um, that any, um, any small peep about his plans and, and when he might finally put a bookend on his chapter uh, was raging news. Uh, and I wish we could say we had, had, Uh, executed that cleanly, but it was more of a dribble over the course of a year and a half. Um, You know, Secretary Geithner likes to tell the story that when he first uh, met President Obama, he gave him a list of five reasons why he should not hire him for the job. And uh, family was certainly uh, part of that. Uh, But, uh, you know, he obviously agreed to do it and to come on board and to stay. And, uh, you know, then there was a period in the in the midst of his tenure where he was, uh, keen to get back to New York and to try uh, to to be there and to spend more time with his family. And I think partially um, due to uh, what was happening in Europe and um, obviously the relationship that they had built up and the way um, the president really relied on him, he did ask the secretary to stay. And uh, that was an agreement and arrangement they had. But the speculation around um, what day and what moment um, that would actually come. Come to a close did continue for some time, and that was definitely a, a hard thing um to 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 witness um, in that you know he he really uh, does deserve I think a bit of privacy and uh, that was really all he was ultimately trying to achieve
2: well, the story did come to a close in January two thousand and thirteen and I want to hear a little bit of President Obama. Praising Secretary Geithner at the farewell event in the White House.
4: A little more than four years ago, uh, I stood with Mr. Tim Geithner and announced him as my first nominee to my cabinet. Uh, we were barely two months into the financial crisis. The stock market had cratered. The housing market had cratered as well. Uh, bank after bank was on the verge of collapse. And worst of all, uh, more than 800. 1,000 Americans would lose their jobs in just that month. And the bottom was not yet in sight. So uh, I couldn't blame Tim when he tried to tell me he wasn't the right guy for the job. (laughs) But uh, I knew that Tim's extensive experience with economic policy made him imminently qualified. Uh, And I also knew that he could hit the ground running. As chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, he had just spent several sleepless and chaotic weeks Immersed in the complexities of the crisis, and had been working closely with his Republican predecessor at Treasury to save the financial system. So we've been talking a lot about Tim
2: himself, Secretary Geithner. Now let's pivot to some of the people who have to work for him and have some of those sleepless and chaotic nights as well. I'm, and you had plenty. What's Jenny? I I know you as a very fun person. You. Uh, We have a lot of friends in common. You are the life of the party. And yet here you are at a department where it is completely buttoned down. There is not a lot of room for creativity. And as it happened in 2008, moving into 2009, and really throughout 2010 and 11, there are a lot of sleepless nights. How are you dealing with it?
0: Well, I'm doing better now uh, because I have departed. Uh, But I I think sleep deprived was uh, certainly an appropriate adjective um, for a good good part of of those uh, years. But I have to say it was an incredible experience um, to be there in that um, the staff um, of of that department is just so incredibly top-notch. And um, that extends from the political appointees um, who the president and Secretary Geithner brought in through the career staff who have been there under numerous secretaries and have just an incredible institutional knowledge and command over some really um, complex uh, subject areas and um, you know it was it was an honor and a privilege to work with them and um, you know it, it, it really was the people uh, that kind of keep you getting up and and coming back at it um, on any given day um, and you know I, I think it, it is a privilege to um, serve in these government roles and uh, they're not often Opportunities that come around uh, every day depending on how elections fall and such and so I think it's uh, the kind of thing when you do have that opportunity uh, if you can just keep powering through until your gas tank really does uh, go on to empty um, it's absolutely worthwhile um, because as you know uh, just a, a lot of incredible experiences and, and opportunities come along with yes what are uh, some pretty grueling hours uh that are also definitely par for the course.
2: So it began for you, uh, I guess, in Wisconsin, and your your uh, parents are an art teacher and a math teacher. And how did sort of the pedigree from from your youth eventually? bring you to Washington?
0: Well, I thought I was going to be a journalist and uh, went to uh, a great journalism school at Northwestern in Medill and uh, was was set on that course until a a good friend of mine uh, in college said, hey, why don't we go try uh, to be White House interns in Washington? And he came from a very political family and uh, seemed uh, pretty gung-ho. So I said, okay, but you know, why Why exactly would I want to do that? I'm kind of into journalism. And he said, well, mm-hmm. you could try to work in the press office and, and have opportunity to maybe meet someone like Sam Donaldson or other, you know, giants of the day. And that to me sounded um, like a pretty cool uh, thing to try. So uh, I did go ahead and submit the application. And Lo and behold, was selected uh, and uh, made my way to Washington uh, that summer after my junior year in college and uh, worked in the White House press office uh, and had a great experience, uh, was completely bitten by the bug, um, thought this is absolutely what I want to do after all, and uh, really never looked back. I was um, hired, my first job out of school was, was back in the White House press office, um, absolutely the least glamorous job uh, that exists there and that I was the overnight clips. uh, Clip girl. Clip girl. Exactly. And um, it seems like such a thing of the past for those of us who now read the news bulletin and, you know, other services that come so neatly packaged in the morning. Think of how many
2: trees we killed in those years. Oh, yeah.
0: I would work overnight going in at like midnight and cut, literally with scissors, cut newspapers until six or so in the morning when you looked like you might be a Coleman minor because you had so much ink uh, fully uh, up your arms and usually on my face somewhere too, um, but got to deliver that that news packet around the West Wing of the White House. Um, and it was a real good earn your stripes uh, position. And uh From there, Joe Lockhart uh, hired me out of the night into the day to uh, be his assistant um, in the press office there and uh, was fortunate to have a a number of of great opportunities in in, uh, political communications that followed.
2: And, and, and you also earned yourself a great nickname. How did you become a Tiger?
0: <laughs> Isn't this the moment when Jake Seward comes on <laughs> as the second guest of the show? Because that would be excellent, although it would probably take up the full duration of the program for him to go through the story. But the short version uh, is that it was a Clinton trip to India in, uh, I think it was March of 2000. And um, really, the president uh, wanted to do some sites and see tigers in a tiger preserve. And, of course, we uh, came up with a very substantive fact sheet that went along uh, with the trip about tiger preservation. And uh, as sort of the kid on the trip, it was my responsibility to pass that fact sheet out to all of the journalists traveling who knew it really was a sightseeing thing and didn't care so much about the fact sheet, but I was very intent on distributing it through the normal channel. Channels. and uh unfortunately in uh internet connections in Ranthambore, India were not so great uh in March of two thousand and I was unable to send it out fast forward three days later we're in bombay we roll into the city everybody's gonna go out because that's their one chance uh to see a few sites even though it was midnight or whatever the hour might have been but i went to the press file to send again to attempt to send the tiger fact sheet and um well the end of the story really has me in tears because everyone comes back and I'm still sitting there. And Jake was very central uh, to to this story and uh, kept the tiger name going for many years uh, through today, I would say. It still lasts. <laughs> still did, did,
2: today. Were you at least able to see a clip in which some of your factoids made it into print?
0: Well, I, no, I don't believe so. But the fact sheet <laughs> is available on the internet. So I think it has lasted through time. And uh, every now and again, uh, someone digs it up and and presents it at some birthday or, or send off or some such event. And uh, so I think it lives, uh, even though the press coverage was pretty thin.
2: <laughs> it, you know, at some point in 2001, the Clinton administration ends and a lot of us say, well, you know, we've had our great time and you've gone from an intern to clip girl to Joe Lockhart's assistant to traveling around the world with President Clinton. And you'd think, well, maybe now's the time to cycle out. And yet, You almost doubled down by heading up to the Hill. What was going on To Chuck Schumer. To Chuck Schumer.
0: That was the double down.
2: (laughs) Uh, Why?
0: Well, because Chuck is the best press secretary in town. He is really um, incredible at uh, a news sense and savvy. And um, I I learned an incredible amount working for him. Um, And, you know, he wants to be in every corner of New York. York State. Um, and he's got ideas and policies uh, that are suited across the board. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a great experience in really learning to hit the ground running. And, um, you know, the New York City media market is intense. And I remember a, a good number of Sunday mornings doing my pitch calls early for his, his famous Sunday morning press conferences. But you know what? That was a successful way to break through um, in the New York City media Market and uh, you know he gets a lot of credit direct for himself. He's had a lot of great people work for him, but I think uh, a lot of credit to him. Um, Did you see
2: the New York Magazine piece on the whole sort of lineage of Schumer? Uh, uh, graduates the marriages,
0: the oh, marriages, there was a marriages the, piece. The, I the definitely saw the industries that he has
2: dominating. <laughs> yeah. you know Jeff Berman to yes. the NFL. You know,
0: great, great people, great people.
2: So uh, then it, after. Working for uh, Senator Schumer and Senator Durbin, it's it's back to politics, back to elections and conventions, and what was the thinking that said, okay, I've got another election in me versus uh, you know I'm done.
0: Well, I think at that point, I I wanted a a chance to get out of Washington a little bit and understand um, how it was, how it worked uh, that, uh, you know, these folks got to office in Washington and and how did that all come together? What was the um, communications uh, arc along the way of a campaign? And so um, I did take a a few tours uh, through uh, the campaign trail and also had the opportunity in the course of that to work on um, two Democratic conventions which
2: Boston and Denver right that's
0: correct which were just um, in my view awesome experiences as a communicator uh, to how many be-
2: months would you have to be in in sight for both Denver and Boston
0: Well, uh, the Denver convention I did completely um, day one um, through the finish. And there I was there for about 15 months, um, which, you know, even surprised my mother. Why could you, why would you need to be there that long um, to pull something like that off? But you really are building the infrastructure to support 15,000 members of the media descending um, on a city, on a particular event for a concentrated period of four days. Days. And um, that takes an incredible amount of planning to get the human and physical infrastructure in place to support that. And um, that was a challenge that I, I really um, enjoyed and uh, did it once, went back for one more, and then said, oh, I don't know. But my husband, you know, uh, who was you also out of it anyway, right? on your program, yes, has continued the Lecomte the family Lecomte. Uh, <laughs> convention Tradition, and and he did this last one in Charlotte, Well, I was quite pleased to sit it out. So he he's uh, I think hopefully done with the torch himself. But uh, it it was great experiences for us both.
2: Bill, graduate, does the White House, does Capitol Hill, does campaigns, even does a lobbying group, the Recording Industry Association of America, does four years of. Uh, of a major cabinet department at Treasury with Secretary Geithner, Uh, what's next?
0: Breathing deeply, <laughs> a little more R and R, uh, I don't know. I I am continuing uh, to work uh, with Secretary Geithner, which is a wonderful opportunity. Um, very excited um, to see how his book does unfold and um, what his chapter next chapter entails. So that has been a great um, project for me coming out of the Treasury, and um, I hope it it keeps me busy for some time to come. Um, but beyond that. Uh, I don't know. And um, I have really very much uh, enjoyed the opportunity to uh, refuel the tank a little bit and uh, operate on a, uh, a a day's schedule that is slightly less uh, chaotic than uh, what the past four years have, have entailed.
2: Are you still sort of upbeat about living in washington from the girl who came to work uh as an overnight clip person in the white house for for someone who might be in your position at your age when you came to work for clinton is it still a good gig?
0: I think so. I think so. Um, you know, there's uh, so much that is challenging about this this town, and that can be frustrating, particularly we when we have the entrenched politics um, that has been so characteristic of um, you know the past few years. Um, but I think you know, through it all, there are such great people here, um, really with the with the right um, right motivations and. And, um, desire to help uh, people through policy and the opportunity to help the communications around that is is something that I have really enjoyed and um, so I, I do hope that um, there are uh, some some additional chapters for us uh, my husband and I here in Washington um, because it's it's something that has absolutely been very rewarding along the way.
2: Jenny LeCompte, tiger to many of us. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. The former Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs for the United States Department of the Treasury, now breathing a little more deeply in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics.
0: A pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius
1: XM 124.
2: So as I said at the top of the show, last week we had a great conversation with Beau Willimon, the executive producer and showrunner of House of Cards on Netflix. And Beau was with us for about a full hour, and last week we played chapter one, to use his vernacular of that conversation. House of Cards is divided for the first season into 13 chapters, so uh, instead of being able to stream the whole thing at that moment, we now pivot to chapter two in which Bo picks up the story as we're talking about the development of the series and looking forward to season two. Stay tuned for chapter two our conversation with Bo Willemont. So you and David have the pilot script and pretty much open to various cable outlets that might be interested in it. How does it end up in Netflix hands?
1: That that was all over the course of really a couple days. Uh, really, we sat down with a number of networks. Um, I mean, they came to David's office and sat down with us, and we talked about what we wanted. and And we said meetings
2: brokered by your agents to say it's going to be it's going to be auctioned now and over the next few days and line up. And you created that schedule of meetings.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's something similar to that. Uh, and. Uh, uh, they had all been given the script and knew who was involved, and, and we had said very clearly, we want a full season, guaranteed. We don't want to do a pilot. Uh, a pilot's what that term refers to is you shoot an episode, and then the network decides whether they want to order more or, or air it at all. Uh, and I'm we... all too familiar having done a pilot so <laughs> yeah and so you know we'd put a lot of time o- over a year of effort into this we had uh, what we thought was a pretty great team and we were confident uh, so we wanted that sort of commitment uh, that's a lot to ask uh, a lot of networks no matter what the names are are nervous about that um, meanwhile uh, we had, c- it had come to our attention that Netflix was interested in getting into the original programming game uh, we didn't know what that meant or what it would look like uh, but we certainly wanted to sit down with them it seemed not novel, and interesting. Uh, so we did. And right off the bat, they said, we want to offer you two seasons up front, and we also want to give you creative control. Uh, now, And $100 million. <laughs> well, when when you have a company um, that's as big and powerful and forward-thinking as Netflix, willing to make a commitment like that on their first try, uh, that's definitely something to be taken seriously. And, uh, and we did. And w- when we took a step back and thought about Uh, the potential of of where streaming services were going, um, how this really was the future of television, Uh, and, you know, certainly the, the two seasons up front and the creative control were attractive to us as artists, uh, it just, it became a no-brainer, and, and there's a bit of rebel in all of us on this team. You know, none of us had done TV before. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, we just want to tell a great story, uh, and the idea that our first go at TV really wouldn't even be TV at all, I think uh, we found both exciting and, and uh, a bit amusing at the same time, uh, and we decided just to jump in head first and, and, uh, and team up with uh, a company that also hadn't done TV.
2: So next step, you gotta fill out a roster of writers for your writers room and you gotta find sets and locations and and zero in on Baltimore and whatever you can make work in Washington. Tell us about those two parallel tracks: cre- the the writing and, and the creative process and the production process.
1: I hired about half a dozen writers, uh, a diverse group of people, in, uh, in terms of backgrounds, uh, some some of them are mostly playwrights. Others had worked in TV. quite Rick a bit. Cleveland
2: had done West Wing. I know. Yes,
1: he, he. I believe he did a season of West Wing. Uh, and uh, you know, I, uh, old pal of mine, Sam Foreman, who I'd written my first pilot with. Some of these were people that um, you know I knew, like Sarah Tream, for instance. Yep. Uh, who I knew from the theater world, uh, and, and make sure people I knew and didn't know, and people uh, uh, with very different voices. Because what was important to me um, was uh, people who could come up with ideas or moments that I never would have been able to think of myself. Uh, and. Uh, everyone brought uh, different strengths to the, to the room. Uh, so I, I moved out to LA uh, and w- rented a house, a three-story house in Venice. I lived on the top floor. The writer's room was on the bottom floor and offices on the second floor. So my commute was two flights of stairs. Because and,
2: that was close to David and that was close to writing talent?
1: It was close to MRC and Netflix. Uh, a few of the writers were based out there. Some of them moved out there. Um, but at the time, uh, yeah, it, being close to Netflix and, and uh, the uh, other EPs um, seemed like a smart idea. Uh, and so we worked for seven months, and we ended up with 13 drafts. Now a lot of those drafts I ended up rewriting later and making some big changes story-wise during production that required uh, a, you know, a significant rewriting. But we had a pretty good idea of, of where we were at after those seven months. Um and then you know we got up to the prep phase where we needed uh to build our sets as as you mentioned and figure out where we we're gonna shoot this. And Maryland made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it was close to D.C. If we wanted to shoot down there, um, uh, would have loved to have shot everything in D.C. But the District of Columbia is pretty small. There's not a lot of places where and you. You mentioned
2: can't... Homeland Security gives you some headaches. Uh,
1: yeah, it's it's not that they give us headaches. They're doing their job. They yep. they want to keep our capital safe. And when you roll up with 20 trucks uh, next to the Washington Monument, uh, it's a security concern. Even if we're just making a movie, uh, I mean, Argo is a good example. You <laughs> could. Use that for in a nefarious way, I suppose. Um, so, so there's a lot of restrictions post 9/11, uh, and we have a great relationship with the DC Film and TV Commission. They do everything they can to facilitate shooting in DC. But, but for instance, like setting up sound stages in, in DC for noise levels um, in terms of traffic, a whole host of reasons is is very difficult. Uh, and shooting in DC is difficult um, in terms of locations. Uh, so. Baltimore's not too far away. Uh, There's a lot of locations there that that look a lot like D.C. Uh, Some Washingtonians may disagree with me um, on that, and certainly we can't recreate every aspect of D.C. there. Uh, But but there's a great tax incentive in Maryland. Um, A lot of shows have been shooting there, like Veep, The Wire is a great example, Uh, Game Change. Uh, and, we were able to build stages in Edgewood, Maryland, uh, where we could really control the sound and traffic and access. Uh, and so, it just, it made sense. And What are the main sets you're building? Uh, the, the, we, I think we have about 200,000 square feet, two warehouses that we converted into sound stages. And the big sets are, most of the stuff you see in the congressional hallways and offices are on stage. Uh, Russo's apartment, Zoe's apartment, Uh, the Underwood residence is on the stages. Each of those floors is comprised of a different set. The Oval Office... um, uh, It's a
2: perfect Oval Office. Uh, Why do you have President Walker uh, sits in a bunch of different places? Usually, you know, our president sits uh, on the left-hand chair in front of the fireplace under Washington's uh, portrait?
1: It depends. Uh, Different presidents sit in different places. uh, Do you uh, have that on authority? (laughs) uh, I've looked at countless pictures of different presidents in the Oval Office uh, to try to get a sense of what the sort of geopolitics of of where people sit. um, uh, have, have uh, you know, how that's played out over the years, because, um, you know, thinking about where people are in the room definitely um, influences uh, the power dynamics of that room. Vice uh,
2: President Matthews never could have got away with a scene of walking in alone, sitting there and stealing a pen. Uh,
1: that's not entirely true, in fact. Um, I mean, you may have had a different experience in your White House, uh, but I've spoken to people uh, for whom you know, they they said it would. It's maybe unlikely, uh, but not. Uh, no one's going to stop the vice president if he chooses to walk in there. Um, a, a, at least in some White Houses. So, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, President Walker sitting in a lot of different places. Well, sometimes it's also just you want visual diversity. Right. You want to look for different ways right. to shoot the room so it, it doesn't start to feel tired.
2: But that brings up sort of a a thought that I've seen online. A lot of people say, well, is House of Cards uh, authentic? Uh, Does it get things right or wrong? And you've said, and I'll say as a viewer, who cares? You're telling a really good story over 13 episodes this season and, and another 13 to come. I've
1: never said who cares. I deeply care. Um, it's very important when you're telling a, a story like this about a very specific world to get as much right as you possibly can uh... and uh... I, I, you know we we spend a huge amount of time doing research um, whether that's drawing from personal relationships that I made in the political world and getting people on the phone. For instance, I was speaking to a friend from the Department of Energy yesterday about a very specific storyline. Uh, whether that means um, seeking out experts that we don't know in various fields, um, wh- whether that means um, you know doing a roll up the sleeves, read a book or get on the internet and find the information we need, uh, or going to the Library of Congress. We do that research. Um, uh, a lot of my friends in Washington and people who have met because of the show uh, feel that it's uh, pr- probably, um, in in their opinions, um, one of the more, if not the most, authentic show that they've seen about DC uh, in in recent history. Uh, and uh, I, you know, that's that's a that's something that I want to maintain. Uh, there are times when we have to exaggerate or simplify for the sake of drama, or where we'll fudge the rules a little bit, uh, but. Almost everything you see in House of Cards is absolutely plausible. In some cases it might be unlikely, uh, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And if someone had said to you in 2006 that two years later you would have the first black president of the United States, a lot of people would have thought that was unlikely or implausible. Uh, I think the political world constantly surprises us with things that haven't happened before. Uh, And so when you're making up a story, you ask those questions. Uh, And uh, the fun part is that you actually get to play it out and see what it would look like. Um, Oftentimes, uh, though, the truth is stranger than fiction.
2: How good are Freddy's ribs?
1: uh i they they're really good i mean you know we when you see them on uh screen uh you, you know we don't we don't have a giant uh sort of buffet of his ribs um you know sitting there for everyone to munch on uh, the, those are props uh but there's a lot of great ribs in baltimore in maryland um and uh and oftentimes in craft services uh ribs will show up uh so uh yeah we're all you know those of us that are that are not vegetarians are, are definitely ribs fans So you get the order from
2: Netflix, you've created the staff, the room has churned out 13 scripts, you've created sets in Baltimore, you've done filming in the Baltimore, Washington area, Uh, post-production comes, and it's time to uh, share this creation with the world. What's We've never seen anything like a 13-episode upload on February 1st, and the Allowance of binge viewing from day one. We binge view The Wire many years later. We binge view uh, Deadwood. We binge view all these great shows when we weren't tuned in week by week when they first premiered. But what's it like to see your creation available, all 13 episodes, for all of your audience at one time?
1: I think you bring up a really great point that uh, there have been plenty... Uh, of examples of binge-watching in years prior to our show being released. Uh, And what we were doing is really responding to a trend that was well underway. Uh, People with the advent of uh, on-demand, DVR, streaming services, box sets, uh, have been binge-viewing for a while now. uh, And they increasingly expect to be able to determine what they watch, when they want to watch it, how they want to watch it, on what device they want to watch it on. Uh, so what Netflix did is said uh, we're willing to exploit that trend with the way in which we deliver the series uh, Why not put that power in people's hands from day one uh, the power that they've come to expect really anyway uh, so so in a lot of ways we were just in the right place at the right time with the right partners who had the guts to do it um, but but I think uh, I think y- what you will see is that this is going to uh, become an in- increasing way that shows are delivered to their viewers. Uh, certainly Netflix plans to do that with all of its upcoming shows, uh, but I think you'll see other networks uh, start to uh, consider that uh, as, a, as a option, and then, you know, actually follow suit.
2: Was there a debate between you as the creative team and Netflix about, well, should we do it week by week, or should we-, should we Not so much as
1: a, a debate, as a discussion, and what were the pros and cons of, of uh Of going either way. Uh, And then we talked about options in the middle. What if we do it in chunks? You know, like four episodes, then five, then four. Um, And I think everyone uh, naturally sort of veered towards 13 because we felt like you know, Netflix is doing TV for the first time. We were all doing TV for the first time. And shouldn't we be new also in the way in which we deliver it? And and people's experience on Netflix is being able to completely control their viewing experience. Why shouldn't that be true of their original content as well as their library? Uh, so I think we all leaned in that direction, but, but we certainly talked about all the options. And I wrote the show uh, so that it would work either way uh, because even though you give people the opportunity to binge watch, it's not required. You, know, you can watch it on a slow burn if you want. You could watch it over the course of a couple of years if you want um, that first season. So it should be able to work uh, as a binge and also work as something you watch slowly.
2: What's important for me to say to listeners, uh, which I didn't know until a few weeks ago until I started watching House of Cards, is some of the reading you 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 go through about House of Cards is that it's a it's great television, but the viewing experience is compromised because people are watching on their mobile devices or on their iPads or on their laptops. And so Bo Willimon, what I did a couple last year is I go out to Best Buy, I buy one of the Samsung smart TVs, and I don't really know what that smart TV button does until it's time to say, I want to start watching House of Cards. And you press that button and and you, it's connected to the internet, and up comes a menu of Hulu, Netflix, and other services. You input, you take advantage, by the way, listeners, of a free, free month trial on Netflix, but you give them your credit card number, and if they don't, uh, if you don't decide to stop the service after a month, they'll bill you month to month, just like you used to when you got the DVDs. And you press, look at, view shows, and look at the menu, and there's Kevin in the Lincoln Memorial-style chair, and you press the, you click on that, and up up comes the 13 episodes. You press play on the pilot, and the viewing experience and the high definition is just as good as if it's on 8 p.m. at HBO. Uh,
1: absolutely, no, I mean, this is high definition, and um, and, and with people buying 65-inch high definition TVs these days, uh, in some ways it's better than the experience that you could even get in a the theater, um, if you're watching in a movie theater. Uh, so, I, I, you know, in terms of um, the viewing experience, uh, I think in general people would far prefer to determine for themselves what a proper viewing or satisfying viewing experience is rather than be told um, what that is. And uh, you, you know, you mentioned something earlier about uh, water cooler moments, that that's gone. Well, um, yes and no. The water cooler moment of people getting together, uh, you know, on a Monday morning, having watched something the night before, um, maybe so, but that was gone anyway. Um, People who are watching things on Sunday night or Thursday night or whatever, oftentimes are DVRing it and watching it uh, three weeks later. So that's already going out the door. Uh, And I think the whole idea of uh, scheduling TV shows for certain days and certain times uh, will fall away. Uh, and the reason that is, is, is there's no longer just 24 hours in a day. Uh, the only reason shows were ever once a week at a given time is that goes all the way back to live television days in the 50s when you actually had to shoot at a given time on a given day. Uh, And then when stuff began to be taped, uh, sitcoms that had three cameras and a live audience, the live audience needed to show up at a certain time. And you needed the week in order to write the next script and rehearse it. Um, But even then, it wasn't necessarily required. It was just something we were conditioned for. Well, that conditioning has just become the norm. Um, And uh, one of the reasons that you needed a certain day and time was also because you were selling advertising. So there were certain primetime slots where you could sell advertising for more. Uh, but when you look at Netflix, when you look at HBO or Showtime or a lot of uh, paid and now even basic cable channels, commercials are not a factor. So why does it matter? Why do ratings even matter um, in the same way? You're not selling advertising time. Uh, so... You know, now that the, any distinction between the television and the Internet has fallen away and will continue to dissolve uh, as smart TVs are proof, uh, I, I think that, you know, kids that are growing up now have really no conception of the sort of slot schedule that many of us who are a little bit older uh, grew up with. Uh, and uh, they might watch shows and have no idea even what network they're on or what time and day of the week they're normally scheduled for.
2: Before we get to our final couple of questions with Beau Willimon, I just want to hear a little bit of a conversation between Frank Underwood and his ex-press secretary, Remy.
4: You've made your point. Have I? I hope so. It's such a waste of time. He chose money over power. In this town, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after ten years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference.
2: Remy plays an important role in the beginning, middle, and end of the first season of House of Cards. Uh, what's the relationship between Frank and Remy, and, and, and what makes that unique in your series?
1: Uh, Remy was a superstar press secretary uh, for Underwood um, years before, I worked for him for eight years. Uh, and then uh, cashed in. He left uh, in order to join the private sector, and he did so by uh, working for a major uh, lobbying firm. Uh, and when we first meet him in House of Cards, he's recently been promoted uh, to partner in that firm, which is a big deal for a guy his age. Uh, and so uh, he, he's really the face of lobbying for our show. Um, you know, because of his connections with Underwood uh, and because they have a lot of shared interests, uh, we see them at times working together and at times against one another. Uh, and and it, it it's our way of dramatizing the very complex relationship that politicians have with lobbyists.
2: So, in terms of some of the roles in Washington that you dramatize in House of Cards, the lobbyists, the journalists, particularly the female journalists, who've had a few things to say about the way that, that, that Zoe and her, her colleague at The Herald are portrayed, um, and also the, the people who toil in government like Remy was when he's a press secretary, Doug Stamper, uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from people who, whose lives you actually portray in House of Cards?
1: Well, all of our characters are fictional, but of course, as I mentioned before, we want the worlds to be authentic. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the media who have very divergent divergent opinions about Zoe Barnes and Janine Skorsky. Uh, uh, of course, Zoe Barnes, played by Kit Mara, is a young, ambitious reporter who... Um, is working her way up the ladder, and and Janine Skorsky, played by Constance Zimmer, has been around the block a a few times. Uh, uh, I think one of the things that a a lot of people in the media take issue with is that Zoe is uh, the lengths to which she's willing to go in order to get her stories. Um, Now, uh, here's the the thing. Uh, We are not telling the story of Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, Zoe Barnes is not seeking the truth. She's seeking access and influence. Is that a representation of pure journalistic ethos? No, it's the exact opposite of that. It's everything you're told is wrong in J school. Uh, But those reporters exist. And I know of at least a handful of uh, real cases in which uh, reporters have slept with sources for stories. Anyone who doesn't think that happens in the media world is out of their mind. Um, And while it might be rare, uh, it is not um, you know, it, 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 while it might be the exception to the rule it's definitely, it, def, it definitely is there and it happens um, but remember also when Zoe first approaches Francis uh, while she may show some cleavage and play that card uh, Francis laughs at her for that um, he doesn't take it seriously and really the way that she uh, convinces him is with her mind not with her body uh, later, that transactional relationship of, I will print your stories in order to have access, um, evolves into a sexual one, uh, a complicated one that is really more has to do with uh, power than attraction. Uh, but it doesn't start that way. Uh, and Janine Skorsky, of course, later in the season, um, you know, while she's accused Zoe of sleeping with people uh, in order to get her stories uh, as they befriend one another, says that is not a good strategy for advancement. You know, I, I have tried that and uh, it only got me so far and actually ended up hindering me in the long run. Um, you know, so so people have within our show uh, a spectrum of opinions and points of views about that strategy. Uh, and uh, it, so we're not trying to make any comment about the media world that it's all like that. But But we are telling the story of ambition and telling the story of power, not telling the story of journalism journalistic ethos. And, um, and I think that's uh, people who, who don't want to stomach that and that that is a reality um, find that hard to swallow. Uh, but, you know, the media, you know, it's interesting that they, they make a living by holding up a mirror to society. And yet, oftentimes, uh, as navel-gazing as they can be, writing about one another, when, uh, when people turn the mirror on them, uh, particularly in dramatic form, Uh, They get very, very uncomfortable. Last jaw, like Bob Woodward (laughs) found last week. Um, But isn't it extraordinary how much was written about that by the media? And it's totally how interesting and important truly is that story? Not at all. You know, Um, but that's the media writing about the media, which they love to do, uh, yet don't really want to admit how uh, sort of, uh, you know, self, uh, you know, infatuated they are with with their own stories and 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 look you know we don't we're not trying to attack the media in fact everyone's fair game it's interesting when people uh, have have so much vitriol about Zoe Barnes from the media and yet have no problem with uh, Peter Russo I mean, here's a guy who who lies to his loved ones, who lies to the people, and and yet a lot of viewers and media folks end up rooting for him. I mean, they they have no problem with uh, Francis Underwood killing someone, uh, but they do have a problem with Zoe Barnes uh, using every tool that's available to her in order to get ahead. Um, and so you know it's it's uh, I I welcome that sort of um, reaction strong reactions are better than no reactions uh, and I love um, the dialogue that it's generated so for the young man to wrap up Bo Willimon who was
2: a barista to uh, to finance his uh, his writing work early on in his life who now has to manage a room of writers working on the second season of House of Cards who Uh, on various nights we'll take to Twitter and say a half hour for any question you may have I'll be doing
1: that tomorrow I usually do it on Fridays how
2: are you dealing with the fandom and the celebrity and the need and the, the demands on your time and putting a new season together
1: uh well, I mean, they're, they're, I don't have to worry about celebrity. I'm the farthest thing from a celebrity. Uh, I'm a guy who shows up to work like anyone else and, and puts in my 40 to 80 hours a week um, working hard for a job that I love. Uh, and, and I feel very lucky to be in that position and, uh, and surrounded by collaborators who share that same sort of work ethic and passion. Certainly creating a season of a, a television show is a monumental task. Um, there's a million challenges, uh, but... Uh, you know, I I can't possibly complain. I mean, it's in any way, it's it's a dream come true. Um, we have the resources uh, to make thirteen hours, quality hours of television. I get to work with the best people in the business, um, and, uh, and 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 it's everything that I've always hoped for. So um, you know, I, I'm just trying to enjoy it uh, every moment that I can, while while I'm also um, you know hard at work uh, trying to. Uh, do as good a job as I can.
2: If you can't tell us any of the uh, plot points that might be coming up in season two, can you tell us about any new sets that need to be built? Uh, down Not around? at all.
1: I can't say a word. If I told you about the sets, I'm kind of indirectly telling you about the story. Uh, and uh, and if I told you, I'd have to tell everyone.
2: Bo Willimon, executive producer, showrunner, creator of House of Cards, thanks so much for spending some time with us on Holly
1: Thanks so much for having me. This is fun.
2: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.